Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. In our previous Speaker's Corner episodes, Cole and I mentioned that we're interested in pitches for essays from our listeners. Friend of the show, Kobe Nelson, took us up on the offer, and we're so glad that she did. Here's Kobe's audio essay entitled, Fish Stories. And if you've an essay to pitch, by all means, wind it up. Almost two decades ago, a friend of mine said, Hey, you want to go see Big Fish? I agreed, not knowing anything about the movie, just knowing it was something to do on a Friday night. We went, ate popcorn, and enjoyed our time. But themes from the movie haunted me, long after the credits rolled, and eventually I bought the DVD, feeling sure that I would find myself experiencing the story of Edward Bloom from my living room for years to come. Unfortunately, though, Big Fish shared the same fate of many of the DVDs I bought in the early 2000s. It collected dust for more than 10 years, something that Marie Kondo would likely shake her head at, and eventually found its way into the DVD binder that my husband and I bought when we realized DVDs were a thing of the past. Recently, though, in a moment of summer break boredom, I leafed through the binder with my two kids. We found Big Fish. Hmm, I mused. I love that movie. Want to watch this? I asked my 12-year-old. She looked at the faded artwork on the DVD and shrugged, as if to say, sure, why not? With this response, I knew the movie had about 10 minutes to impress my daughter. If it didn't deliver in that time frame, then she would be off to do something else, anything else, that was more interesting than the old movie her mom was watching. As the movie started, I found myself once again enthralled by the fantastical and whimsical stories of Edward Bloom. And my daughter surprised me by being interested too. We watched intently as Edward Bloom, now an old man, tells story after story of his life to his now grown-up son, William. Throughout the movie, William struggles with the embellishments of his father's stories and wanes between acceptance and cynicism. In the process, we, the audience, sense incremental changes in William, changes that lead him to accept who his father is and eventually say, a man tells his stories so many times that he becomes his stories. Engrossed in this movie I hadn't seen for years, I found myself struck by this thought. Perhaps the ways we choose to remember our lives and the lives of others profoundly shape who we become. Maybe how we remember our lives genuinely impacts not only our own lives, but the lives of those around us. Perhaps this is why in the Old Testament, Moses spoke to the Israelites with admonishments like, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness, and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. The Israelites, the people of God, were to remember the good things of the Lord, the ways that God brought them through the desert and to the promised land, the ways that the Lord showed them grace, whether they could see it at the time or not. The confluence of these things, experiencing big fish with my daughter and reflecting on Moses's admonishments to remember the good things of the Lord, have led me to wonder about the ways my memories have shaped my own life and the lives of those around me. I wonder things like, 
How have memories of my parents and sisters shaped my relationships with them? How have my memories of the places I've lived and the people I've known shaped how I relate to them today? Do I remember people, places, and experiences with a grieved spirit? Or do I remember them with gratitude? For example, as a practicing teacher, I often think about educational experiences, my own and my students, because teachers tend to use their own experiences to inform their teaching practice. This means that educators' memories of being educated are, perhaps unwittingly, tied to the ways they teach their own students, a reality that I become more and more aware of each year I teach. So as a high school language arts teacher, I reflect on my own high school experience and like many others, find a lot to be grieved about. As a teenager, I attended a small private school connected to our church. It was sorely lacking in much of its curriculum and instruction. For instance, there were some days that I would show up to English class, having done my homework, and our teacher would decide to take a day off, walk us all to Starbucks, and get lattes and hang out. On other days, our science teacher would decide that it was a video day, and he would pull on the TV and play a couple of reruns of Bill Nye the Science Guy for the day's lesson. By the end of my senior year, I had probably racked up more hours watching Bill Nye than my sisters in elementary school. Unfortunately, the choices of our teachers likely affected mine and other students' future opportunities in ways that could have been avoided. Poor ACT scores, mediocre admissions letters. These are normal outcomes of receiving less than a stellar education. And as a current teacher in public education, I feel terrible about taking days off on a whim or making high schoolers rewatch old videos that could be found on PBS. I know many other teachers who would feel the same way. Yet, on the other hand, as a parent with school-aged children of my own, I want to consider why my parents sent me and my sisters to that particular school. After all, my family was a low-income family, and we lived in apartment after apartment while I was growing up. Why did my parents choose to use what little resources they had to send us to that school? Some might say it was because my parents didn't graduate college or know much about best practices in education. Others might assert that it must have been because my parents felt that a private education, any private education, must be better than a public education. But I think it was something other than that, something more. Something I saw this last spring when my daughter debuted in her first middle school play. As a sixth grader, my daughter was given a few bit parts in her school's spring production of Beauty and the Beast. She was excited about being in the play, but also a little put out by the fact that she didn't get as big of a role as some of her friends. My husband and I tried to encourage her that her time would come and this year's performance was practice for next year's. But for a 12-year-old, it can be difficult to see past the disappointment or perceived injustice of the day. So one afternoon, between the end of school and the call time for the evening performance of Beauty and the Beast, my parents picked up my daughter and took her to their home. There, my dad showed her a clip from The Princess Bride and convinced her that bit parts in movies and plays could actually be the parts that make the scene way better than it would have been otherwise. He practiced my daughter's part with her and helped her add a little pizzazz to her character, and that night, she was ecstatic. 
After the play, my daughter excitedly told us how Papa had helped her practice her acting and make her character more memorable. Even though she didn't have a huge part this year, my daughter felt like she belonged in the play, that her role was important and made a difference, which it did. My daughter's excitement brought me back to my high school drama experiences when my dad volunteered as a play director. In the spring, when play practice would really get going, my dad would drive over to the school after a full day of work and rehearse scenes with us kids. Sometimes he would encourage us with praise and other times he would sternly remind us to memorize our lines. I love those times with my dad. Even though he wasn't an official teacher at my school, he spent time with me and other kids, helping us be more than we thought we could be, helping us produce plays that we could be proud of, no matter how big or small our role was. After play practice, when dad and I would drive home at eight o'clock at night, I would sit in the passenger seat feeling content. I think that feeling of contentedness came from knowing that my dad was invested in my education in all the ways that he could be. If my parents had chosen to send me to the nearby public high school, some things would certainly have been different. Likely, I would have graduated knowing more about chemistry and biology, and likely, I would have been able to write better admissions application letters. More colleges and universities might have glanced my way. More doors may have been opened. But it is also likely that my parents would not have been as personally involved as they were. Because of this, I would not have known what it was like to have a mom who asked about my homework on the drive to and from school. I would not have seen the countless hours my dad put into volunteering to direct the play and the satisfaction he felt when everything came together on opening night. I would not have had the experience of knowing in a tangible way that my parents cared deeply about my education and wanted to be a part of it. And upon reflection, I find myself immensely grateful for this. My parents' investment in my education is ultimately what propelled me forward to not only graduate high school, but to graduate with a bachelor's, master's, and most recently a PhD. For a few, earning those degrees might seem ordinary, but for others, like me, they are extraordinary feats that attest to the value of parental involvement and choice in schooling. By using their limited time and resources to invest in my educational experiences, my parents taught me the value of sacrifice. Not only the tangible sacrifice of time, money, and energy, but the intangible sacrifices that often involve giving up momentary comforts in pursuit of something lasting. Something that will not lose value once you drive it off the parking lot, so to speak. In high school, I, like many other adolescents, did not know the value of my parents' decision to send me to the school of their choosing. But in the years since, I have come to think differently. Near the end of Big Fish, a beautiful scene emerges when Edward Bloom passes away. His son, William, finally makes peace with his father, the storyteller, and his father, the man, understanding in a way he didn't before the inextricable link between the two. In this understanding, William accepts the legacy of his father, a legacy left in stories, and in his own way, continues the story his father began. It's hard to keep back tears in this moment. The scene speaks volumes about the ways we live, love, and relate to others in our short lives. It reminds us that the stories we read, watch, and listen to, and the stories we live out in our day-to-day -day lives are so entwined 
that at times it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. Rather, like William continuing his father's story, we too live out our own versions of stories that have come before us. As a teacher, particularly a language arts teacher, it's my job and pleasure to help students carry on the stories of their own lives, stories that originate in families and communities that often exist outside the four walls of my classroom. The stories we read, the podcasts we listen to, the pieces we write are many different ways that the legacies of my students and their families are able to come to life in the classroom. Legacies that make my students public education connected to rather than totally separated from their personal lives. In my mind, this is what my parents did for me when I was in high school. In choosing to send me to a school they could be invested in, my parents truly gave me a gift, showing me that education does not happen in a vacuum, fragmented from everything else outside the classroom. Rather, I learned that education is best served on a dish that's made with the rest of the student in mind. And because of this, I am who I am today, hopeful that I can help my students become who they're meant to be as well.